If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and turn to John chapter 4. If you're new to the Bible, John is going to be in the, the New Testament, the back half of your Bible. You'll go Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll find John, John chapter four. If you're here and you don't know Jesus, man, we are so glad that you're here. We actually want this to be a safe place for you to wrestle with the claims of Christianity. So if there's anything we can do to, to walk with you in that, all of your questions, your skepticism, your doubts, it's, it's all welcome here. Um, th- there are two common approaches to the Bible, and I want you to think about this while you're turning to John 4. There are two common approaches to the Bible that, quite frankly, are very popular in Western culture, at least in Western c- Christianity culture. And then specifically here in Oklahoma in the Bible Belt, we see these approaches all the time. The first approach is that uh, this, this philosophy that the main message of the Bible is this, be good. That's the main message, just be a good person. All of those rules, all of those laws, they're there so that you can realize that you can, you know, do this and do that and become a good person. And so this idea imagines that in heaven, there's this giant scale. And on one side, all of your good deeds go. And on the other, all of your bad deeds go. And by the end of your life, Jesus is going to stand in front of that scale and he will decide your eternal destiny based on which side had more uh, more weight to it. So uh, this is just this idea that you can actually be a good person and do everything right and earn God's love and God's favor. That's one approach to the Bible. It's just a list of rules so that we can be good people. There's another approach to the Bible, and this one, it's not saying the main message of the Bible is be good. This approach says the main message of the Bible is be like. What do I mean by that? Be like. It sees the Bible as a listing of heroes that are being held up for us to look at, and these icons, these heroes, we're supposed to live our lives and try to be like they are and have the courage like they had and have the faith like they had, and that's kind of the main message of the Bible. That's a very common approach. In fact, for me growing up in the church, this was the most common approach that I kind of thought of the Bible. It's like there are all these stories, and those stories are there to help me know how how to live and how to be a good person. So uh, Noah, be like Noah. Uh, Noah built a boat because God told him to, and it didn't make any sense, and it was in the desert. I should be willing to do whatever God tells me to do, even if it doesn't make any sense. Uh, Abraham, be like Abraham. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son uh, for God. I should be willing to not withhold anything from God. Be like Abraham. Uh, Be like David. Uh, David was courageous, and even though he was small, and even though he was unlike the unlikely hero, of the story. He faced his giants with courage. And so that's what I need to do. I need to go out into the world and I need to be strong and courageous and face my giants as well. Now, here are the problems with those two approaches. The first problem on the the be good uh, approach is that the Bible actually, if you actually read it, it's going to tell you that you can't right? It's going to say, it's not just that you can't be good, but you're actually not good. And it's not just that you're not good, you're actually bad. And if you don't believe me, that's fine. Have a baby, right? Or if you don't have a child or won't have a child, just volunteer at a daycare or just watch a child for like 10 seconds. And you will realize that there is something profoundly wrong with the human race, right? There's something deeply disturbingly wrong because listen, like my daughter, she's two, Eleanor, my youngest, and she's in the biting stage, which just as a side note for future parents is like an actual stage of childhood development where they bite people, right? So, so she, she bites. And if you like do something that she doesn't like or tell her no, or if you offend her in any way, she will straight up bite your flesh, 
I mean, it's the walking dead in my house right now. It's just absolutely crazy. And listen, like, can I just point out, this is not modeled behavior in my home, right? It's not like my wife does something that offends me and I'm like, ah, well, how dare you, right? It's just the way she is because she was born thinking that she matters more than anybody else and that her way is the best way or the highway and that she's gonna do whatever she wants to do. And if you do something that offends her, she will literally tear your arm off. So that's kind of the, the, the problem with this idea of we're just, you know, the Bible's a bunch of rules, just be good. What about the, the idea of the Bible being a list of heroes that we should be like? Well, here's the problem. All of those heroes, if you dig into their lives, they actually make really terrible role models. Like Noah, be like Noah, except for the time when he got hammered drunk and took off all of his clothes and just passed out in the living room of his house. Don't do that. Uh, be, be like uh, Abraham, except for when Abraham pimped his wife out to save his own skin with this really powerful king. Oh, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Yes, you can have her. Please don't kill us, right? Be like David, except for when he committed adultery, got the, this woman that wasn't his wife pregnant, and then to cover up his sin, had her husband, one of his friends, murdered, Right, so if you dig into this, the Bible is not a list of like rules so that we can be good people. The main message of the Bible is you're not good, but there's one who is, and his name is Jesus. And he actually loves people who are broken and sinful. And it's not a list of heroes. There's actually really only one hero in the story, and it's Jesus. And all these would-be heroes are actually just pointing us to Jesus in really beautiful, powerful ways. Now, why do I tell you all that? I say that because we're in a series called heroine, feminine strength the world needs. And we're taking these women in scripture that exhibit beautiful strength to the world and we're holding them up. But I don't want you to think for a second that the main message here is be like this person. They're awesome. You should be like them too. Or be like this person. They were great and they exhibited a lot of feminine strength in their world too. Listen, what we're trying to do is show you women in scripture who have been captured by the grace of Jesus, that have been changed, that go from broken to adopted into his family. And we're trying to show you how they live out that salvation that Jesus has worked in them and the ways that they bring unique beauty and strength to the world. So, so, and remember, anytime you see a woman that is awesome or anyone else in the Bible that's awesome, they're always just pointing us to Jesus in new ways. Now, some of you, you've been through this series and you've thought, man, Ruth is awesome, but I'm just not like Ruth. Esther's pretty great, but I'm not like Esther. My story's a lot more jacked up. It's a lot more broken. It's a lot more sinful. Do I have a part to play in this? Well, today I want to introduce you to a woman in John 4 that doesn't fit the mold of what we might think is a heroine. This woman in no way exhibits any sort of particular feminine strength to the world that we can hold up to and say, see, be like this. In fact, this woman, she doesn't have a book of the Bible named after her. She doesn't even have a chapter named after her. This woman, we're not even told her name, right? And this woman, the only thing she has to offer out of her life is sin and guilt and shame. And what happens in John 4 is so profound because it's going to tell us stuff about ourselves and stuff about Jesus that we couldn't see as clearly without her story. And the big question that I want you to be thinking about is this, can someone like you and can someone like me with a past and with hidden guilt and shame and with things inside that we would rather keep hidden with dark pages in our past that we would pay millions of dollars to have ripped out of our story. Can someone like me be fully known, 
be fully loved and still be used by God? Or do I have to just keep pretending to be somebody I'm not? So that's the question I want you to ask. And we're gonna jump into John 4. I'm gonna read, read us about 40 verses. So I need you to hang in there with me. I believe in you, right? Hang in there. We're gonna read through this. But as I'm reading through the story, I need you to do this. I need you to insert yourself into the story. Don't just, don't just read this for facts and to build your intellect and just to see what's really happening. Like put yourself into the story with me. John chapter four, look at verse one. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he obviously didn't baptize so that people can be like, I was baptized by Jesus. I'm awesome, right? So he's not baptizing, only his disciples are doing that. Um, He left, verse three, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Now, if you underline or highlight in your Bible, you need to underline verse four. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. We'll come back to that later. Verse five. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. I love that picture of Jesus, right? He's tired. He's weary. This is not God wrapped in a skin suit, right? This is God who became a man and stepped into our world, right? He's, he's fully man, fully God, but he's living out of his humanity. Here he's weary from his journey. He's sitting beside the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's noon, okay? Middle of the day. Verse seven, a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink, Now that feels weird culturally. Let me just pause. That feels weird culturally to us. Like you don't just walk up to people you don't know and say, give me a drink. You don't just walk up to people at a restaurant and like, is that Coke Zero? Could I have a sip of that, right? That's just not something we do culturally. So this sounds a little bit rude that Jesus is asking this woman, hey, give me a drink. But really it's not rude. It's actually him saying, hey, I don't have anything to draw water out of this well with. I don't have a cup. You're drawing water. Can you give me something? He's actually putting himself in her debt. He's being polite and putting himself into her debt. So he says, give me a drink. Verse eight, for the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Verse nine, the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Pause again. What's happening here? Well, two things real quickly. This, this first of all, was a woman And second of all, she was from Samaria. Now, why is that a big deal? Being a woman and being a Samaritan woman. Well, here's the big deal. In that culture, women just were not valued as equal to men at all. In fact, in a court in this culture, uh, a woman's word or testimony wouldn't hold up in court and it couldn't be counted as legitimate because women weren't seen as trustworthy in this culture. So if you were a woman and you were a witness to a crime, you could not tell anybody because your, your testimony didn't count. You were a woman. And in this culture, in addition to that, men would never speak to women uh, in a public setting alone like this. It just wasn't something that was done. Not because it was inappropriate as much as it was just showing too much respect and dignity to have a conversation with a woman in this culture. They just didn't do that. So the fact that Jesus, a, a man, is, 
is talking to this woman and actually saying, hey, could you help me out here? I'm tired. Would you give me a drink? Is already a massive deal. He's showing her unbelievable respect and dignity already. And then in addition, she wasn't just a woman, but she was a Samaritan woman. Now, Samaritans, what's the big deal there? Well, the Jewish people hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were actually descendants of the people of Israel, but they'd intermarried with a bunch of other pagan nations. And rather than, you know, worshiping God just like the Jewish people, they basically took all of the Old Testament and said, I don't, we don't like that. And they rewrote their own version of the first five books of the Bible. And they built a different temple on Mount Gerizim. And that's where they did their sacrifices. And that's where they worshiped the God of the Bible. And and so the Jews considered the Samaritans as dirty and unclean and as heretics that you should give no time of day to. You shouldn't have any interaction with whatsoever. In fact, the Jewish people, they hated the Samaritans so much that they wouldn't eat with them, they wouldn't drink with them, and they, they would certainly never drink out of the same cup as a Samaritan. So this woman is confused because Jesus is saying, hey, I I want you to give me a drink. And she's like, wait a minute, I'm a woman and I'm from Samaria. What are you doing? Why is it that you, a Jewish man, would even speak to me this way? Verse 10, she goes on, uh, verse 10, Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. That word living water means like eternal life. And don't think like life when you die, but eternal life means life that is abundant life. It's full life. It's it's what we might call the good life. Jesus says, hey, if you knew who was talking to you right now, you would actually be asking me and I would be the one giving you something. I'd be giving you eternal life. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get this living water? So she's totally confused at what he's saying. Verse 12, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now, pause again. This is just something Jesus does on occasion where he'll be in normal conversation, but he moves the conversation into a spiritual place that people don't naturally easily follow him to. So she's talking about physical water and he's pressing on something much more profound. He's talking about this need that she has that is spiritual for living water. Verse 16, and Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. This woman said to him, I love this, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Did you notice what she just did there? She does what we all do when someone starts to press on really shameful parts of our lives and our stories, and we like shift the conversation off of us, right? So so Jesus is like, hey, I want to talk about your adultery and all these marriages. And she's like, I I perceive that you're a prophet. I've got a theological question for you, though. What do you think about predestination? I mean, any thoughts on that that you want to share with me? Anything to not talk about me right now? That's what she's doing. 
Jesus engages, verse 21, he said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who, those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So Jesus, Jesus just answered her question and unpacked it all, and I love this response. Verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. What is she doing right there? She's still not wanting to acknowledge what's taking place, right? She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. One day the Messiah will be here. He'll explain it. He'll explain it. And Jesus is just sitting back and he's like, okay, next verse. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he just drops the bomb on her. Look at verse 27. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking to a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and were coming to him. Now skip verse 31 through 38. It's, it's beautiful. It's true. It's in the Bible. We just don't have time. Verse 39, many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the savior of the world. Now, there are just two things that I want you to see about this woman coming out of the story. And before we say this, you've got to get this. If you don't understand what I'm about to tell you, I don't want to lose you here, but if you don't understand what I'm about to tell you, nothing I will say after this point will make any sense. In this story, you and I are this woman. There are only two characters at play here. It's Jesus and the woman at the well. And the character that you and I most identify with in this story is this woman. Woman, And the first thing I want you to know about her is that she had a thirsty soul. This woman had a thirsty soul. Now, here's the thing. This woman had traveled all the way to this well to draw physical water out of the well. Now, why do you do that? Well, obviously you do it for a lot of reasons. I mean, to survive and to cook and to clean. But, but it's at its basic element here, this woman is physically thirsty for water. But in her conversation with Jesus, Jesus is pressing on something much more profound and beneath the surface that often isn't seen. And that's that this woman isn't just thirsty for physical water, but this woman has a thirsty soul. There's something about her that is looking to something in this world to satisfy the deepest cravings of her heart. What is that thing? Well, we learn later in the story that this woman is looking to men to satisfy the deepest longing of her soul. She's looking to relationships. She's looking to marriage and her sexual pleasure that she can draw from marriage. She's looking to those things to find identity and meaning and significance and to somehow feel, fill the void inside of her soul. This woman was a profoundly thirsty woman in her soul. I, I love the words that John Piper says in commenting about this passage. He says, no woman goes through sexual relationships with six men 
without either starting desperately thirsty or ending desperately thirsty. What happened with these six relationships? Five marriages, five. There is in this woman, it seems, a cavernous void of longing, thirsting. Either she can't find in a man what she craves and so moves from the one to the other, so desperately believing men are the water she's thirsty for, or they can't find what they are craving in her and one after the other drops her, or both. In either case, she is left with a deep, deep emptiness and sinfulness that is so painful and so rebellious that she seals it up. And I just want to say, like, this woman is not the only one who is thirsty in a spiritual way for something to satisfy her. You walked into this room today, or Edmund, or South, or Shawnee, you came to church today, and inside of me and inside of you is a thirsty soul. And what we so often do is we, we have this craving and this longing for pleasure and identity and significance and meaning. And rather than looking to the one that can provide this, we've actually turned away from him and we look to all of these things in our world to give us what God so desperately is wanting to give us. And listen, you may be here and you might be a woman in the room. You may be looking to men or may, you may not be, but it doesn't matter if you're looking to men and relationships and sexual pleasure. All of us look to a host of different things to fill the void. So career, if we can just get the right career and achieve the right level of influence in our jobs and status, then I'll finally be happy. Money, if I could just make this dollar amount, I'll finally be filled with pleasure and I won't be living paycheck to paycheck and I'll be able to buy the things that I want. Isn't it funny that like 10 years ago, you had a dollar amount in mind and now you're making that dollar amount and you're still just as miserable? You're not happy, you're still living paycheck to paycheck. It's because more money is not gonna fix your problem. We look to career and money. We look to power and platform. We look to relationships and children and our identity that we can get in that. We look to food and drink. And every time a new restaurant pops up in one part of our city, we rush to it, just trying to just be happy and be satisfied and fill the void inside of our souls. We look to sexual pleasure. And for our culture, sexual pleasure is as important as breath and water. It's essential in our culture to survive. You can't imagine not having sexual pleasure. There's this thing in us that we're just longing to be okay. And yet, no matter how much sex we have, no matter how many relationships we bounce to and out of, we're still the same people. We're not satisfied. Maybe you look to your own ability to create your identity and to fashion kind of your future the way you want it to look. Either way, we're incredibly thirsty people and it's something profoundly deep inside of us that we can't shake and we can't get rid of. And no matter what we put in, we're not being satisfied. Now, why is that? Why is it that things in this world don't satisfy? C.S. Lewis, he says it this way, creatures are not born with desire unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. But then listen to this. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, we look to the world to bring us what only God 
can bring us. In Jeremiah 2, he rephrases what C.S. Lewis says in a different way. He says, be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. See, this is her story. She goes to the well and she's thirsty, but there's something happening beneath the surface that that she's actually craving something that she thinks men can provide her with. And we do the same thing. Now, how's that working for her? And how's that working for us? Well, I just make the argument that culturally, we're not getting more happy as a people. In fact, the stats say that depression uh, increases. There's like 14.8 million Americans that struggle with depression with an annual increase of 20%. The suicide rate from 1999 to 2010, it rose by 30% in the ages of 35 to 64. For teenagers, suicide is now the third leading cause of death. So we're unhinging ourselves from God and we're running after whatever it is that we want to run after and it's not actually working for us. Things are getting worse, not better. We're getting less happy, not more happy. What about this woman? Well, here's what happened to this woman. The other thing I want you to see, she didn't just have a thirsty soul, but this woman was filled with shame and guilt as a result of all of her thirstiness. She was filled with shame and guilt. Now, how do we know this from the story? How do we know that this woman was walking around carrying guilt and carrying shame? Well, she, here's how we know. She heads to the well all alone at the hottest part of the day. Now, why would she do that? If you've ever traveled outside of the U.S., particularly in different parts of Africa, where women of the city will every morning wake up and they'll go to the well, this is always done as a communal experience. It's done together with all the ladies of the town. They'll get together, they wake up, and they head to the well together. And they always leave either early in the morning or at the very end of the day so as to avoid some of the heat. And so this is just the way it is. And it it was the same way in this culture and context. Women would wake up and they'd travel early in the morning together to the well. And it was their time to catch up on the news and gossip. And it's what you do when, you know, you head to the gym with your lady friends and it's like catching up on what's going on. Well, this woman, she goes at the hottest part of the day and she goes all by herself. Why is that? Because rather than wanting to be like brought into that community, the, the Samaritans were an incredibly religious group of people. And she was considered sinful and broken and adulterer. She was the woman of the town that everybody talked about like, oh, she just got married again. Five, she's on five right now, right? Oh, she just left that one or he left her for whatever reason. Now she's on her six, but they're not even married and they're sleeping together. I mean, rather than being able to participate in the gossip, all of that gossip is directed at this woman. And so in an effort to hide in an effort to cover herself up and to be kept safe, this woman goes to the well by herself at the hottest part of the day so that she doesn't have to see the eyes of the city on her so that she doesn't have to see the stares and the glances and the whispers and so that she can keep all of that guilt and all of that shame hidden from other people. Now, let me just say, not only are we like this woman in the sense of being thirsty in a profoundly spiritual way, but we are like this woman because you and I walk around with guilt and with shame and we try to hide it from everyone around us. In fact, what we do is we put on a mask and we wear a costume and we pretend to be someone that we really aren't. We create a false version of ourselves and what we do with this self, it's a, it's a coping mechanism to keep ourselves safe 
so that we can be loved and accepted. We wear, wear a mask and we put on a costume and we enter into the world and we present this false version of us to the people in our lives. And then what's really scary is we, we take this false version of ourselves and we even present it to God. So there are times we're talking to God or praying and singing and we're presenting him our false self, the one that always does what's right, the one that isn't addicted to pornography, the one that doesn't struggle with drug addiction, the one that doesn't have past that's sinful and gross that if anybody found out, they would want nothing to do with you. Right, So we, we carry this guilt and shame, but we bury it down deep, put on a mask, put on a costume, and present a false self to others and to God. And then the most scary thing is that there are times even where this false self is what we present to ourselves. So now we don't even really know who we are. We're this person that wears a mask and wears a costume. Now here's what's scary about all of that. When you create a false version of you, and you present that version of you to the people in your life and to God and to yourself, the real you that is down there somewhere can never receive love, can never receive mercy, and can never receive grace. Because you think the only reason you are loved and accepted and have the forgiveness that you have is because of the false you. You hide and I hide. We're like this woman. We're sinful and because of our sin, there's guilt and there's shame beneath the surface, and we don't want anyone to know about it. So we go into hiding. Now, that's what this story tells us about this woman. She's profoundly sinful. She's got a lot of guilt and shame. She's hiding from her community. She's in isolation. What does this story tell us about Jesus? Well, here's the first thing I want you to see. Jesus moves towards the broken, not away from the broken. Go back in your Bibles to the very beginning of the chapter, verse four. Or I'm sorry, look at verse three with me. Jesus left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And verse four, I asked you to highlight or underline, remember this verse, verse four. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, why is that? Well, that's not actually technically true. There are multiple ways for Jesus to get from where he was in Judea to where he wanted to go in Galilee. He had a bunch of different route options. One of them was straight through the heart of Samaria. It was the fastest route. But listen, devout Jews would never travel that route. They would never go through the heart of Samaria. Why? They hated the Samaritan people. They were sinful. They were dirty. They were gross. Don't go through Samaria. You're going to get their sin on you and they're considered unclean. Don't do that. So devout Jewish people, they would actually go all the way around to the east and go all the way around Samaria and make their way through Galilee. It was a little bit longer, but you didn't have to go through the heart of the city. Jesus here says these words. He says, I have to pass, or he had to pass through Samaria. Why is that? Because Jesus knows there's this broken woman. She's thirsty for men to bring her satisfaction. There's something in her that only Jesus can give her. She's searching for it and she goes to the well and Jesus knows if I leave now, I will get to the well at the same time as her and I'll have a conversation with her. There's this woman that no one else wants anything to do with that I'm going to love and I'm gonna forgive her and I'm gonna do something in her life. Jesus moves towards broken people, not away from. You think that because of your past and what you've done and who you are, that you have to convince God to like you. 
that you have to try really hard and you've got to turn over a new leaf and you've got to stop the addiction. And you, Now listen, those things are helpful and eventually they follow salvation. But listen, when Jesus comes to you, he comes to you at your worst, not at your best. He comes to you when you have nothing to offer, not when you're presenting this beautiful false self to him. He moves towards us, not away. And then Jesus does something else. I love this. Not only does he drift towards her, but Jesus is aggressive and surgical and exposing in his love of this woman. Look at verse 16 with me. I want you to see the aggressive love of Jesus. So this woman had just asked for living water. She just asked Jesus, hey, give me this living water. And then Jesus presses in even deeper. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. Now, am I the only one in the room that that feels a little bit harsh to me? Jesus knows what's going on. Why would he bring this stuff up? He's pressing on the bruise of her soul. Why would he do that? She just asked for living water. Give her living water, bro. Just give it to her, please. Just like she's asked for it. Don't go deeper with this. And yet Jesus says, hey, go call your husband. Listen to her voice. Just can you hear the shame in it? The woman answered him, I have no husband. And then Jesus said, you are right in saying you have no husband for you've had five husbands. And the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. So Jesus, he doesn't let this woman off the hook. He's aggressive and he's exposing and he's surgical. And can I just point out, there are times where it feels like when Jesus is coming to you, he's coming with an ax to hack you to pieces because of your shame and because of your guilt. But actually what Jesus is doing here is he's coming with the surgical knife because he wants to do surgery on your soul. And it hurts and it's painful, but something beautiful and healing will happen after he's done with you. And we push that below the surface and we, we hide and we pretend to be someone else. And Jesus here is doing something. He's saying, don't hide from me. To, I'm gonna pull it all out. I'm gonna bring it all up to the surface. I mean, this was the worst part of this woman's story. And Jesus is just going at it in the most aggressive, surgical, exposing way possible. And here's the reality. We live in a culture today that says there's only one sin and that's to say anything is a sin. And so we're all trying to convince ourselves that we're not sinful and we're not broken and this thing that we think is guilt and shame really isn't there. We just need to pretend it's not. Yes, we'll still go to our therapist and find a counselor, but we don't really have guilt and shame. We're gonna push it down below the surface and until you are slammed with your sinfulness and until you feel the pain of it and until you feel the sting of your grossness and the hurt that you've caused, and the things that you've done, and the ways that you can't change, and you can't fix yourself, you will never need a savior, ever. And this is the problem with Oklahoma. We're doing just fine on our own. Thank you very much. Just give me the rules. Give me the church thing. I'll be all right. Jesus wants more. He wants to expose that part of you that you want to hide. I love the words of Chip Dodd. He says, the amount of forgiveness that you receive is directly related to your willingness to be fully truthful, exposed, and surrendered. That is humbled. Until you're willing to come clean about who you are, to be real 
with yourself and with others and with God to confess who is really behind the mask and who is wearing the costume until you expose your sin for what it is. You can't really be loved and receive real forgiveness because you're always just presenting a false you. And then last thing I want you to see about this love. If it stopped here, we'd be like, man, that's rough. You just exposed this woman's sin, called her, you know, hey, go get your husband. Oh, that's right, you don't have one because you're a sexually broken woman. End of story, right? This would not make a good Bible story. But here's what happens next. Jesus' love, it's not just exposing and aggressive and surgical. Jesus' love is transforming. It's transforming. Look at verse 28. So the woman left her water jar. By the way, that was the whole reason she went to the well. (laughs) Kind of a big deal. She left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And they went out of the town and they were coming to him. Now, can I just pause for a second and comment? Like, think about this, this, this message from her perspective. This is a woman who's known to be wrapped up in relationships with men and always bouncing around to the next man. And she's hiding from her community. But after Jesus does some heart work with this girl and actually moving towards her and offering her living water, this girl runs into town, leaves her water jar, and she starts yelling about another man right? How crazy is this story? Like everybody in the city's like, oh, who's she talking about now? Another girl, another man, or another man rather. This girl's onto another man. What is wrong with this woman? But she says, no, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. How could that be good news? Hey, come see a man that exposed me very aggressively. No, she's saying, hey, come see a man that he fully knew me and he fully loved me. He knew the deepest part of my story. He knew the sin and the shame that no one else knows. And he surfaced it up and he loved me and he offered me living water. You got to meet this guy. Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of this woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the savior of the world. Guys, this story is a story about Jesus coming to to people that don't have anything to offer the world. They don't have any strength to offer the world. And if that's you today and you feel like I don't have anything to offer, these are the types of people that God loves to love and to draw close to. And yes, it's gonna hurt because he's gonna expose your sin for what it is. And he's gonna aggressively go after parts of your soul that you would rather keep hidden. But he does it not to shame you. He does it to deal with your shame and to heal you and to bring you his grace and his mercy. And this woman goes from being isolated from the community to running into town as an evangelist saying, you've got to meet this man who exposed my darkest secrets and loved me anyway. He's changed me. You've got to come meet him. You think that you have done things that disqualify you from being used by God. Those things that you have done, they're the only thing that, dis- they're the only thing that qualifies you to be loved by God because Jesus loves sinners. And they're the only things that he's gonna use to make much of his glory and his grace and his power and saving people that never would have been rescued if it was left up to them. So listen, if you're here today and you are not a Christian, 
you have to deal with this today. You've got to deal with this today. I'm, I'm asking you to deal with Jesus today who is standing before you. And listen, he's moving towards you, not away, but he doesn't want to let you off the hook. There are things in your life and there are things in your past and there are things that you are currently doing. And Jesus is pressing on that bruise right now and he wants it to come to the surface. So please realize he's pulling the mask off and he's taking the costume off and whatever is really left over, that's what he really will love. And he is offering you living water. You know how badly you want to be satisfied and to have pleasure and to be okay. Jesus is saying, come to me. I am what you want. And he went to the cross and he gave his life for you. He took all of your sin and your shame and he was put in the ground. He received the wrath of God that you deserved so that you could receive the mercy and love of Jesus, which you don't deserve. And then he rose from the dead and he's alive today. He reigns in heaven as king and he's not on vacation. He's like working in and through the church in the world today. And today he's calling to you, come to me. I see who you are. I see what you've done. I know the story. I know the past. I know what's been done against you. You are not irredeemable. Come to me and I will give you living water. And then if you're here and you're a Christian, what I love about this story is that this story reminds us that you and I have already been outed at the cross, have we not? Jesus already publicly declared us to be really sinful. In fact, we were so broken and so sinful that Jesus had to give his life for us. That's pretty bad. So there's nothing that I could say that's worse than that. There's nothing that I could reveal or expose about myself that is worse than murdering Jesus right? That gives me such freedom. It humbles me because I'm not awesome. And yet it gives me boldness that he still loved me as I was. And I can come to him and I can receive more mercy, more grace, and still be used by God, even with a past. This is the story of Jesus taking women and men that don't have strength and in their shame and in their brokenness and in their weakness, he uses it in profoundly beautiful ways.